everybody. This is Aaron Good. You're listening to the American Exception Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Daniel Bessner, co-host of the American Prestige Podcast. He is a professor in the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. Some of you may remember that we've talked about Scoop Jackson in past episodes. He's known as one of the founding fathers of neoconservatism, and back in his time, he was often referred to as the Senator from Boeing. Kind of funny, I guess, that he has a school named after him at a major public university, but that's how it goes. Uh, anyway, I digress. Daniel Bessner is also a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a contributing editor at Jacobin. In 2019 and 2020, he served as a foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. Daniel is an intellectual historian of U.S. foreign relations and the author of Democracy in Exile, Hans Speer, and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual. Stay tuned after the interview because we also have a discussion on materialism, ideology, and propaganda with our man in Boston, Ben Howard. But first, here's our discussion with Daniel Bessner. Daniel Bessner, it's good to be here with you today. How you doing? Hey, Aaron. I'm good, man. I just had a great week on Twitter, so just riding high. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, let's talk about Twitter because Twitter is a place where something pops in your head and you can quickly post it and see the response. And you posted a, a tweet which raised some eyebrows, including mine, I guess. And uh, I'll read it here. It was, my one message to the world, propaganda very rarely works. People are not that stupid. And if it works, it's usually a function of material reasons. So I would, I think that I, I personally would attribute a lot of our political problems to the catastrophic success of propaganda, uh, and, and so in that, and I would say that it is effective. But why do you think that that we that it doesn't really work that often? So I think we should probably start. You know, we're both PhDs. Let's start with defining our categories. Um, so there's political communication in every society at all moments in history. And political communication is necessarily informed by ideology, the way one understands the world, the way one frames the world, the way one basically structures the miasma of human experiences and information that come into their mind. Um, and I think political communication is always informed by ideology. Um, and so then the question becomes is when does political communication transform into this thing that we call propaganda? So what I think is that on the contemporary American left, which is the one with which I'm most familiar uh, and with uh, is the one that I think, you know, the, the leftists who mostly got mad were based in the United States, maybe not totally, but it seemed to be quite a bit. Um, is that propaganda has by 2022 come to be understood as defining any form of political communication, any form of political communication that contains an ideological that contains ideological content, which I would say is all forms of political communication. Now, why do I think that is? I think in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, propaganda had a more specific term. And, and in particular, it was often used by American policymakers to refer to what the Soviet Union or to what Cuba or to what other countries did. They would say, we're telling the truth 
and you are propagandizing, right? You are you are not telling the truth. You are lying. The American state would claim incorrectly it was itself lying, uh, that it was always telling the truth, and it would say that, no, you Soviets are always lying. I think what happened in the 1980s is that in a reaction to this use of propaganda, left-wing anti-imperialist critics basically reacted by saying, no, aha, you, you U.S. decision makers, you are the ones who are actually doing propaganda. Um, you're saying other people are doing it and you're claiming that you're abiding by what was called um, for much of uh, the 20th century, the strategy of truth. But in actuality, you're, you yourself are telling lies. And, and you could see it in the various operations of all political communication in society. So I think in the last you know, 30, 35 plus years, um, propaganda has commonsensically become known on the left as to refer to all types of political communication that contain ideological content. Um, so why do I actually think it's important and why do I not just think this is a debate about tenses? I think there is also, um, and Aaron, I think this this sort of strikes directly at what you're interested in. So pay, uh, you know, this is the one that you should really pay attention to. I think that there's this false belief on the American left that the exposure of nefarious doings or the exposure of um, particular conspiracies in the past will actually engender political change. Essentially, the exposure of all political communication as, as quote-unquote propaganda, many on the left believe, will somehow impel change. Um, I think, ironically, this is actually a liberal understanding of political communication, something akin to what Habermas proposed, um, and I define Habermas as a liberal, uh, essentially arguing that rational exchange, the exposure of ideas, are mean is a meaningful way to change politics. And therefore, you know, referring, you know, pulling the, getting the, the sunglasses off everyone's face, you know, pulling the wool out from their eyes by exposing everything of propaganda, I think people believe will engender political change. So I actually think it's a harder problem to identify political communication as not necessarily being quote unquote propaganda, but as being ideologically informed content that is actually much more difficult to overcome than propaganda that just, you know, lies to you or tells you fixed uh, or, or messes facts around or, you know, screws with what you're saying. So that's my basic why I think it's actually important to distinguish between propaganda and political communication that is ideological, because I think if we don't, we will misunderstand the nature of political change and we actually misunderstand the nature of political communication in a society. So that's basically the whole argument. And then, you know, so it might not be worth it to, to, to argue over like, this is propaganda, that's not propaganda, but that's sort of like the holistic claim behind that tweet. Okay. So um, I guess I would start with a, with a different chronology of the term propaganda and where it came to have its connotation, which it definitely is one of those terms that has a connotation that's different than the definition that academics would ascribe to it. So um, propaganda definition, like the term actually comes from the like 1500s or so that the church had an institution uh, that decided to go out and spread the word, spread the, the, uh, the, the faith around. And it was, they had the term propaganda in it, uh, in this actual, you know, part of the church. And the idea for them, they were not engaged in a nefarious purpose and they weren't there to mislead lead people. They were there to spread the truth for the uplifting of humanity and the, you know, saving of souls and so on. 
And in the 20th century, so it has a neutral, it starts, because people are in the West, in the U.S. especially, are kind of anti-Catholic, the term propaganda itself in the 1800s has either a neutral meaning or a slightly Roman Catholic, you know, uh, meaning that is imbued with the prejudices that they had against the Catholic Church, you know, some, some which were grounded by the actions of the Catholic Church, which were not always so great. But it's not really until the 20th century that it has a very negative meaning, especially after World War One, World World War Two. Also, the Nazis, you know, they gave they gave it a bad name. But also, World War One, you had this massive propaganda campaign, and all throughout the 20, 1920s, yeah, the Creel Committee, which is the first, uh, the CPI, which is the first American official organization of propaganda, I believe. Uh, it yes. gets going during World War One. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I actually focus on this history in my book. Democracy in Exile, if anyone yeah. wants to check it out, chapters two and three. <laughs> the 1920s, however, because they are the propagandists in World War I are so successful and they create this cartoon version of World War I, uh, of the, the Hun as a rapacious, you know, sinister committer of, you know, unspeakable atrocities, turns out not to really be true. And so all throughout the 20s, there's a lot of a lot more anti-war sentiment. And it's it comes to be recognized that that they were the dupes of propagandists uh, for the on behalf of J.P. Morgan, et cetera, et cetera. Just very quickly, I just want to highlight that because I think this is oftentimes a, a criterion or demarcation point for propaganda is sort of the emotional intensity it's supposed to engender. Um, that's oftentimes how the early propaganda or theorists of the 20s and the 30s distinguished it by by its sort of emotionness um, because they were worried about the, the masses, the demos, the public, right? And, and they were worried people like Walter Lippmann and even John Dewey were arguing that propaganda was incredibly effective because the masses were ignorant and foolish and that um, you were able to inspire, you know, irrationality in them, emotions in them. Um, so I actually think, ironically, viewing propaganda everywhere actually endorses sort of the anti-democratic politics of someone like Walter Lippmann. But I just wanted to, sorry to interrupt, but we're specifically talking about the 20s. So uh, that is that sort of, the, this is the, the major debate about propaganda in that decade. I, I urge people to check out uh, Walter Lippmann's um, and, and John Dewey's work, uh, Public Opinion and the Public and Its Problems, as well as Lippmann's also The Phantom Public. Yeah, and Lippmann was, I guess, a fallen socialist of sorts, and he ends up thinking that— I describe you know, him as a liberal. I, I, I that, him yeah, a liberal. He, he had previously—yeah, liberal would be accurate as, as by way of being a more disillusioned socialist, because at that point, he's obviously not saying very socialist things when he's really talking about the hopelessness of the, uh, you know— the masses. So he seems to have become more jaded in some ways by by the time that he writes that, which is pretty early in his career. By the twenties, yeah, I think World War One. There was this popular argument, and I don't think it's accurate, but there was a popular argument amongst American liberals in the early nineteen twenties that the reason the United States entered the war was because they were duped by British propaganda. And I actually think that that kind of ignores the material interests that engendered the war. But so I think these are complicated issues. But yeah, very early it became dissolution. And the the merchants of, of war, you know, argument and you saw lots of references to this, that the weapons makers made enormous amounts of money and that J.P. Morgan, House of Morgan, was connected very friendly to the British and they stood to lose a lot of money if the U.S. did not enter in the war. And in 1917, the Germans defeat the Russians. And it looks like it could be a stalemate. And in that case, how's JP Morgan going to get paid? 
you know, and uh, this is, of course, a conundrum for the American establishment. And so all the propaganda, you know, forces are marshaled to get the U.S. into this into this war. But it, it, but in the 20s, people are kind of disgusted by it because it was a massive slaughter and really for whose benefit. Uh, and so one guy, Bernays, tries to write in 1928 a some propaganda, entitled propaganda, on behalf of propaganda as an enterprise. And he just makes an argument about it as being useful and that it's going to help to uplift society and that it's these techniques of, of mass persuasion are, are things people should systematically study and so on. And Can I just more, point out he's that it's corporate people to this argument. It's not a populist argument. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny that the, the, everyone always points to Bernays, the guy who made money, saying that propaganda uh, is, is effective, is the guy's like, oh, the guy, he's saying propaganda is effective. That's like pointing to Steve Jobs and saying that Apple is the greatest company on earth. Uh, you know, he says it. I, I just think there's an irony there that, that people should take note of, because I think there's this appeal to Bernays, I guess, because of manufacturing consent. Um, the Chomsky co-authored book, and, and he's taken as his figure. But Bernays was just one of many, many figures at the time arguing similar things. I actually think, do you know Paul Lazarsfeld? I think he is a more important figure. He was at the Bureau of Applied Social Research at Columbia. He was an Austrian emigre. And he's really the guy who made propaganda and, and sort of mass marketing techniques quantitative. I think he's actually a more important figure um, because he he basically um, gives propaganda analysis a, a scientistic a pseudoscientific vibe. Um, so I would I would uh, encourage people to read about Paul Lazarsfeld. I think he's more important than Bernays. So the argument that Bernays is putting forward that propaganda could be beneficial and and so on, and that people should study these things to allow for the sort of management of society by elites, and he pretty much is it's an argument for elite management of society. So it's an argument made pretty much for elites. And at the same time, this other book comes out in 1928 um, that's really about the war and all the propaganda and how it how damaging it was. It was called Falsehood in Wartime. And that one actually was aimed at the general public and it sold a lot more copies than Bernays um, and contributed to anti-war sentiment, uh, sentiment. You ultimately get the Kellogg-Briand Pact. And so propaganda becomes this term that is associated with uh, war propaganda and deceptions from powerful actors. The definition of propaganda, uh, one Oxford English Dictionary uh, definition is any association, systematic scheme, or concerted movement for the propagation of a particular doctrine or practice. So that, that just I just want to point out that includes every form of political communication in human history. To me, that's well, not an especially useful definition. What's behind that definition? Campaigning, campaigning things. I mean, you could report on politics in a, a I mean, there's a journalistic way in theory. I mean, of course, there's different bias so, so yeah. the problem with that def so what I think is behind that definition is that there the people are assuming there's like a truth outside of ideology right that this is and that's the fundamental problem um everything that anyone does is informed by ideology what that definition does is like in a very liberal way ironically assume that there's a truth out there to be grasped but if you're like, I think, a socialist or someone on the left, you understand the importance of ideology and ideology critique. And so you appreciate that all forms of political communication contain ideological content because how could they not? Because there is no – this is a philosophical point. There is no truth out there to be grasped. It's all intersubjective. There's no such thing as objective truth for the human mind. Well, to it. 
to a degree, there's going to be ide- things are going to be ideologically framed and, and so on, and they're going to be a function of the society that you live on, the prevailing epistemologies and ideologies and all that. But that doesn't mean that speech that's intended to manipulate people consciously and formulate it as such or other you know types of communications are not to be distinguished by like there's something like journalism that can be imbued with propaganda or have a propaganda effect because of structural reasons or intentional reasons but then there is the idea of like the investigative journalist as kind of the antithesis of the propagandist it's a myth i mean i would point people to sam Leibovitz's free free speech and unfree news which just talks about the sort of development of the professionalization of the journalistic profession and sort of the the the, the i would say the fake um utopia of of quote unquote, objective journalism. I think that's actually done a lot of damage to reporting. Um, I think, you know, that allows a place like the New York Times to claim objectivity when it's really extraordinarily ideological, as everyone listening to this uh, is, is aware. And I think we need to be, a, I, I think we need to have a more sophisticated, sophisticated understanding of political communication that distinguishes between the various types of it. Right. Well, I mean, something like, uh, you know, is it propaganda or is it not propaganda? I mean, the black didn't the Black Panthers call some of their, didn't they actually have a propaganda position just sort of recognizing that, okay, we got to get our message out there and persuade people. That's where, yeah, my know, understanding it's used on both the left and the right. Yeah. Yeah. A concerted movement for the propagation of a particular doctrine or practice. So if, if something like uh, Hollywood, okay. One of the recent things that we did on this podcast was interview Matthew Alfred, who's a co-producer of the movie theaters of war documentary on the relationship between CIA Hollywood and Pentagon, you know, and how much they influence scripts. So they have, they go up to and including like the recruits, that movie, the recruit with Colin uh, Farrell was the treatment for that was actually written by somebody in the CIA. So it, and that the only reason that we know that is because of some court proceedings that brought this out in a strange way. So by and large, we have really have no idea how much they are manipulating like Hollywood, for example, and by your definition of, of propaganda, which, which you posted at some point as uh, communications knowingly intended to manipulate a viewer, listener, reader, etc. by speaking an untruth, then things like that would not be propaganda because it's, you know. Well, I, I, I would have to see the movie. I, I would guess the movie lies about things would be my guess. Well, but it's, it's fiction, so it's not meant to be. A, or, or just a, lies a about the experience of. or distorts the experience to a degree where it does not reflect as much as one could intersubjectively determine accuracy. So they are. The, but the, I think the also like a bunch of manipulating Hollywood for propaganda purposes, but in ways that it's like it's art. So it's not. You know, well, they're manipulating to spread an ideological story. message. Uh, well, so two things. I haven't seen the movie, so I can't comment on it. My guess is that it does exagger- significantly exaggerate or lie about what the CIA actually is or does. That would be my guess, thereby making it propaganda. Or if, like, let's say it just, you know, documentary style said what the, uh, what the CIA does, then I would say it's a form of ideological political communication, which is all for. But I cannot imagine this does not lie or exaggerate, this movie. I just well, get, like, could, flat out. You, you can always, there are other ways besides to manipulate audiences besides of outright. Course lying and i mean a fix something that is fiction if, if you could argue that it's the lie is the uh is somehow in the fictional the dramatization of it and it says something that's totally false or it can just be picking the parts that they want to see basically the issue right. which i thought at the time with the movie the recruit is that there's it, it's there's this scandal of this, this very bad guy who's up to some bad shit in the cia 
And it turns out that it's it's one bad apple, and then the the other good CIA guy has to, along with the the good people in the CIA, have to like root out this bad guy. And that was why I thought at the time it was funny because it wasn't even that radical at the time. And I thought this is propaganda, or at the very least, that distorts how power actually works knowingly. Right. That is a distortion of how power operates in the American state um, and how the CIA is held accountable. So, I, yeah, I'm comfortable with calling that propaganda because ex exactly what you just described is a distortion and is a lie. And we, we live in an ostensibly democratic society with public well, sovereignty in theory. I mean, <laughs> ostensibly, I say. And we have to figure out why we have a really minority rule in this country, a, a tiny economic elite that is able to befuddle the population. And, and you so think that's propaganda? I think it is the cumulative effect of massive amounts of propaganda. I think there that's totally awesome, wrong. There's a supposedly left party in America that's the Democrats. And people yeah, I believe, believe that. that they are like a lot of, you know, a good portion of the population actually believes that they are on something that is the, that is the political left. And this is uh, okay. This is the product of a lot of massive propaganda because how you know this you have two parties controlled by a tiny economic elite that will go so far as to scuttle their most popular candidate for not for actually representing the the voting base in, in his policies. And so this is a this is for one example of the achievements of the propaganda system in the United States. So I would say two things. I would say you are right in terms of uh, identifying propaganda as a cause of people associating the Democratic Party with something that's called the political left. I think if people were aware of the tradition, it doesn't quite make sense for the Democratic Party to be understood that way. Nevertheless, I think this is where you go wrong. Um, I don't think that is the primary cause of the depoliticization of the demos. I think the primary cause of the depoliticization of the demos is just the structure of the American state and where power is actually located. And the problem is by saying it's cause of propaganda, it's caused by propaganda. Um, the solution then is get rid of the propaganda and the people will have power. Um, or the people will even be motivated to change things. And I just don't think that's right. I think it actually makes the, uh, the problem easier to solve than it actually is. I think the problem is twofold. One, like I just said, it's the structures of the state where decision-making is by design cordoned off from not only the public, but from, uh, in many ways, Congress as well. And two, ideology, you know, the framing political communications of society, you know, what's understood as normal, what the people's assumptions about human nature, people's assumptions about, about how politics works um, is a major reason. Now, propaganda, I would say, plays a tertiary uh, role in maintaining that sort of hegemonic consensus and maintaining the American state. Um, but I would say it relies more on what you're implying, economic power, military power, uh, the use of coercion, the use of force, the use of ideology. Um, and I actually think the irony here, and I, I, I'm repeating this, but it's so crucial, is that by claiming that it's caused by propaganda, you're embracing a liberal position, not you, one, is embracing a liberal position that it claims against all historical evidence that rational exchange of ideas between equals, which don't actually exist, is the cause of political transformation. And I think that is a fundamental misconception about how power works in the United States. Well, I would put it as propaganda being the the cause. It's more of a it's more symptomatic of the material imbalances in the in the, the the system, such that one side can issue enormous amounts of propaganda, or various 
it's really one side with it appears to be multi-sided, but really putting out different flavors of propaganda for people to choose, whether it's like Russiagate or QAnon or whatever. I mean, these are massive propaganda. So Russiagate is a propaganda campaign. I think that is a propaganda campaign. But the question is, why did people want to believe it? That's a perfect example. So why did people want to believe well, which people and the, the why did Hillary and the DNC Payment versus why did, uh, you know, right. The broad swath of Democratic Party. Right? Yeah. Like, I think because they didn't want it, they didn't want to accept that their ideology had engendered what they considered to be the total failure of Donald Trump. So they looked for an exit and it was provided in, I agree, a propaganda campaign ab- about Russia. But again, I think that the impulse there, the reason that people wanted to buy it was not because of necessarily Russia, but because of their search to avoid responsibility for what they considered to be the existential threat of Donald Trump. Right. It was the material cause of Trump's election. And it was their, you know, frankly, their own psychic unwillingness to admit to their absolute catastrophic failures, you know, their decades of failures that engendered the belief in the Russian propaganda campaign. So the Russian propaganda campaign in this model is is a superstructure that is uh, reflective of this base that I just spoke about. Well, the the. The public was the, – the Democratic partisans were bombarded with so much of this that to not believe it would have involved them suddenly really taking on a kind of pretty anti-imperialist leftist cast of mind, which they obviously didn't have. They would have had – they deployed a lot of resources on this. And for the Democratic people, the Democratic Party people to like have disregarded it, they would have had to come to the point of view where I am at, which is like, okay – I need to learn, you know, I need to watch the news to see what the lies are and how are the intelligence agencies manipulating the discourse today, which is exactly what Russiagate really was. It was intelligence, uh, you know, it, it, in this case, it wasn't even the intelligence communities as a whole. You find out later it's a handpicked group of, of a small number of agencies that, that came up with all this bullshit. And uh, so it ends up being, you know, corresponds kind of to a cabal in some level, although we've never really had it fully fleshed out what happened, and that they come up with this story, and then the mass media being totally uh, unscrupulous just amplifies this message completely, and the, the Democratic base is not ready for that kind of critique, so they were suckers for it. Whether they wanted to believe it or not, like they, were, I think they you're, were, weren't ready to not believe it. I think you're putting too much power in the story and not enough power in what actually motivated the belief. I think if if we're focusing on critique and if we're serious about like changing things, then focusing too much on the story, I think, misses the forest for the trees um, because the forest is disillusionment and um, self-hate, I think, in a lot of cases and anxiety um, about what had they thought was some sort of utopia with Barack Obama being replaced by Donald Trump. And so what something was going to fill that psychic void. Uh, that that void that comes from inside. Yeah, without Russiagate, Russia without Russiagate, what do they? What, what could it have? I, I mean, so. which is the reason why I think you get Russiagate. But with, if you don't have Russiagate, then how how is it going to be understood by these people that they that they lost? I think it could have been channeled in a variety of different ways. I, I haven't studied it, but I bet if you go, it'd be interesting to go back to the first like three months after Trump was elected and see the various stories that were being propagated in order to explain his victory. So there was the famous white working class one, right? That one got got a, a bunch of play in the first like six months. But soon thereafter, uh, it was I think it was easier to actually blame a foreign actor like Russia, which I agree was this, in this propaganda campaign. 
I, I mean, that was absolutely a, a, a lie about the, the, the sort of gigantic effects it had on the electoral outcome. It just didn't, you know? And so, yeah, that, that, that I think is a propaganda campaign. Um, but I think it's wrong to say that the reason people embrace that because the story was so compelling about Russia or because it was propaganda. It's I don't think that it was things. compelling, that it was overwhelming forced, that it was that it was applied to them. When you stop to think about it, it didn't really make a whole lot of sense. But if you weren't red-pilled on the actual, you know, the way the mass media functions and the, the intelligence agencies function, you know, I say red-pilled like to, to some healthy degree, then you were kind of game for that. What, what I would put forward is, without Russiagate, it, it, it calls into question the entire uh, Democratic Party as it's currently constituted, and, and, that, that, and that that's the problem, and that that is the issue, that they had to save the, the corporate, why would the intelligence community save the ostensibly left-wing party? But it's because they are, it's, a, it's essentially a one-party state, as long as the Democrats are totally corporate-controlled. But this was so humiliating that they had such low turnout, etc., from with this against Trump that Hillary was so unpopular, but they moved heaven and earth to nominate her and and disregard the more popular candidate. That you've got to save the corporate party, and so the way to do that is to distract away and blame it on some external actor, and then you get this whole you know saga that also has the luxury of precluding detente with Russia, which a lot of the establishment was for. I I think that. Um, to correct me if I'm wrong, but the implication is somehow that if if we expose this as a lie, there would be some sort of change, or am I wrong there? I don't really know, but I will say it's interesting that it still hasn't been acknowledged by the press. Like you, you say that exposing things doesn't seem to matter, but the establishment seems to think they matter a lot. Look at the way they still respond to like Oliver Stone's JFK or even with Russiagate having been debunked. And you'll still see like Rachel Maddow do Russiagate shit on, on MSNBC sometimes. It's, uh, it's well, at least her ratings are declining. I think the power of it, I think, I think it's a desperate move by the left liberal media. I think, I think uh, I, that's right. I wouldn't I even call them the, there is no left liberal media except maybe Democracy Now! Uh, or something, but like MSNBC, I wouldn't even call them left liberal. They're, more You're just liberal, yeah, centrist uh, liberal. I, I would ne say neoliberal media or something. I, I mean, it's I don't yeah, even... yeah, I, yeah. They're certainly neoliberal. That's for sure. I think I think uh, both parties are neoliberal at this point. So yeah, at some point we're we're distinguishing, you know, uh, on very minor levels. I agree with that. Um, but but I think that that's mostly about a desperate move by whatever you want to call it, the liberal media, the mainstream liberal media, to uh, gin up anxiety amongst an ever older base of uh, of of viewers who are you know actually stopping uh stopping to watch I, it'd be interesting i wonder if russiagate in the long term actually did damage to someone like maddow because it was so obviously not the major cause of of trump's victory that people might have actually uh left stopped watching her because my understanding last time i checked i think it was a few months ago their their ratings are significantly down um, which I think actually suggests what I was saying was true is that th these, these, these propaganda campaigns may be powerful for a time because they fulfill some sort of psychic or material need, but they're very hard to keep up over time. And it, usually they, they switch to something else in order to defend the sort of material interests we're talking about. Yeah, I don't, I would guess that under a democratic presidency, it's going to be harder. I mean, Trump was a big ratings boost for these people, the Trump clown yeah, show. And so there's that, but there, it, it comes down to more than just ratings at these networks. I mean, they seem to have a, to be conscious of their propaganda function. For example, with MSNBC, they canceled Phil Donahue when he was the highest rated 
show that they had during the Iraq war because he was skeptical of the Iraq war case. Jesse Ventura, they gave him a contract uh, to do a show, and then they found out he was against the Iraq war, so they never let him on the air, but they still kept paying him. And he would have been a very popular person. Uh, they fired um, Ed Schultz for covering Bernie Sanders, essentially, and he had to go to RT. Um, they fired even Jenk Uger uh, because I guess he's the Young Turks are like three degrees to the left of MSNBC. And so that was just too much for MSNBC. They actually fired him and said, you're too anti-establishment, which is funny to me as someone who is you know, considerably more anti-war than Cenk, etc. Um, and so they, it, I, I think that they even know that it's not just about ratings. Like they actually have a, they're, they're aware of their propaganda role beyond just the five filters of like what, what Chomsky says, you're saying it's not as bad as Chomsky says. I'm actually saying it's worse than what Chomsky says and that they are. No, I'm not saying it's not as bad as Chomsky says. I'm saying Chomsky, let's not talk about Chomsky. I'm saying it's not useful to define every form of political communication as propaganda because for the reasons I stated. Well, not every, like every form of political, like campaign messaging is propaganda. I would say you need to, if you're trying to like explain what is the left as a you know historical ideological current in human civilization versus you know forces on the right or you know traditionalist hierarchical forces etc like these are things that can be explained in a way that's not necessarily propagandistic right i mean the perfect unbiased thing is of course impossible but there's there's an there's the an ideal of journalism and explaining things even if you're going to adhere to some imperfect thing that's not the same as like consciously formulating things to deliver to have an a, a set so consciousness that's that's the criterion then consciousness well there's consciousness in terms of a propaganda campaign but in something like what herman and chomsky were arguing they were saying that the reason that it has this propagandistic effect is that there are these structural things that that are over determining in, in terms of producing the output of the the networks but then there's other things that are like more nefarious i mean why is democracy now for example always excited about humanitarian war they, they don't interrogate these things especially under democrats like i remember their libyan war propaganda that they did um and the syrian thing the white helmets like these the white helmets are like a propaganda campaign and the places like democracy now uh eat that up and so the more mainstream sites, they're not anti-war to begin with. And you're anti-war, you're supposedly anti-war prestige media, if you want to call it that. I mean, they actually can hire people, right? Uh, democracy now. And then why are they flacking for war? Why are they having these these ghouls on there like uh, Philip Roth of Human Rights Watch? You know, I mean, this is the that's another example of how devious the propaganda is now. You have human rights organizations. But that isn't that ideology? It's not ideology because they are per se their ideology is not something they would even state like they wouldn't like yeah but because but why is that not just ideology that's just they, they have particularly framed the world in a particular way also i should say I, I i'm not familiar with democracy now I've, I've never really watched it so i'm just going to go i'm just going to assume what you're saying is accurate uh and then uh, but what you just described to me is just how ideological communication functions they they sort the facts on the ground that they get from the wire services or their reporters, they frame it in a particular way in order to promote a particular message. If we're going to define that act as propaganda, then every form of political communication is propaganda. And 
for what I said earlier, I think that actually misses what's really going on, which is an ideology that is very difficult to overcome. You can't persuade people out of ideology like you could persuade them if it was just propaganda. Ideology is much, much more difficult to overcome than a particular form of political communication that's that's distorting the truth, however defined. It's, but in the the democracy now case and the the nation on some issues too, like they they have their their ideology that they would that would be their ostensible ideology is not what gets put out on on important issues. So, for example, 1991, the nation publishes an editorial saying that there's that the accusations of CIA involvement in the cocaine trade are are baseless. It's you know. And it's hard to you can't rational you can't really explain that away with reference to the nation's ostensible ideology, uh, you know, or why do they have these? Are, I mean, I think if we're gonna, I mean, that's that's I've to understand that moment, that editorial. It's a it was an editorial like by the Nation editorial board. Uh, I, I believe like so. They posted it, and it was. Peter's explanation, Peter Dell Scott's explanation to me recently, because he was involved in the Kerry Committee doing actual investigations with the Senate on that particular issue of the Contras and the drug traffic, was that Victor Navasky essentially forced the editorial board to like accept this piece in in 1991 that denied that the CIA had any involvement and that it was just sort so, of crazy. So there's some theory. story behind that. Okay, so so there's some power and interest playing there. But to, or, in order to answer that question, I'd have to like know about what's going on at the nation in 1991. In, in general, and, just look at the look at the drug, the way that they handle those issues, like something like the nation, which is like, okay, on what issues do they actually drop the ball? And it's the 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 wars that are humanitarian, packaged as humanitarian wars, but that are that are you scratch away the surface and you can see the imperialism very easily and the the issue of uh the the intelligence agencies and drug trafficking they tend to obscure that and the political assassinations which which none of the yeah, i mean liberal imperialism has a, has a long long history you know i think it actually liberalism and imperialism and particularly European expansion developed together. So it's not especially a surprise to me that, you know, a, a journal that adopts a liberal ideology, um, or at least the nation, um, you know, it's kind of straddles the border between left and liberal. Um, it's not a surprise to me that they would, you know, make arguments that liberals have been making since, you know, Benjamin Constant, or really he wasn't actually that bad, but someone like John Stuart Mill or Alexis de Tocqueville were making in, in the ni- middle of the 19th century. These are, it's, that's, that is just ideology. Uh, belief about what liberalism can do, what governments are, are capable of, uh, the importance of liberalism as a universalistic project. Um, these, these, that's profoundly ideological to me. Yeah. I, the only reason I know this, I'm writing like a big piece on Cold War liberalism. So I'm doing all the history of liberalism things. And this is, it's from the beginning. This liberal imperialism from the very beginning. Maybe a, first, gen, second generation. So I would say that this, this ideology of, I mean, again, it, it, they're, whatever their ideology is that they would uh, aspire to or espouse, you know, like they're supposed to be the ones digging up, you know, the dirt, they would be saying, Oh yes, we support muckraking and so on. Okay. Sure. But did they support Gary <laughs> Webb when he was doing his work? No, they didn't. And, and yeah, why? I mean, there's an ideological screed on anything. He wasn't arguing it from a Marxist position. He actually went and talked to people that were in drug trafficking cartels. He talked to people in the, even had people in the CIA that had been involved there, approached him, you know, some anonymously and so on. And he was just a straight up journalist, investigative journalist. And so why, why did the nation have people like David Korn come out? 
And that's the other thing that I would get at is people like David Korn, Michael Iskoff, uh, Joseph Alsop, Catherine Graham, these journalists that have connections to the intelligence world and the, the national security state. I mean, Catherine Graham's husband, Phil Graham, his best friend was Frank Wisner. You know, the original Dirty yeah. Tricks guy. Wiesner, I thought it's pronounced. It's, is it Wisner? I think it's, it's Wisner. W-I-S-N-E-R. Uh, I think it's not W-I-E-S? I, no, I'm pretty sure it's just W-I, I think. I, I think oh, yeah, you're right. I, I was totally wrong. You're, so, you're totally right. Yeah. And they were best friends. I don't know why I got that wrong. <laughs> LBJ said um, Catherine Graham is worth like two divisions, right? Talking about Vietnam, this, the, the publisher of the Post. And she's supposed to be this crusader, right? Which... Is a joke in underwater gate, but it's like so. This is where I think it's even worse than what you know the propaganda model says. It's like there's actually some people with agency that you don't know about that are there as well on top of it. And so this ideology of like liberalism and why is it why does it come this way to like ultimately try to save the legitimacy of the state on some issues? Because something like the Kennedy assassination, for example, is very delegitimizing. And it's notable that none of the major media outlets that have been around a long time have been very good on that, even though the public itself, like 1976, support for the Warren Commission goes to 8%, for example. So why is it across the political spectrum of the even left-wing media, they're so bad on that issue? Like the Nation publishes Max Holland, who got an award on the, on the JFK thing, who got an award from the CIA for being like a great writer. So I think this might be a big difference. I think you might think that the state is doing that because they're afraid of the public. And I think the state is doing that because they don't have to worry about the public. I think because power doesn't actually um, emanate from the public will in any way, shape or form, particularly uh, in the time you're talking about in the mid 1970s, which is after the establishment of the all volunteer force. And then elites began to realize it didn't actually need many people to fight America's wars. So I think the story of the last 70 years is actually in the, the, the making the public increasingly weak and attenuating any role that had in shaping government policy. Well, on purpose. Yeah, yeah on purpose. And, I read about that in my book. Them yeah. and, and stupefying them as, as well. I mean, this is the, the general public is very unaware of the way things work. And they, so they're, I, in terms of stupefaction... Mad. In I don't terms mean of stupid, like IQ wise. I know you don't mean that. Mis I, misinformed and disinformed. Yeah. Narcotizing, and, you mean, basically, narcotizing. I think that. Mesmerizing, that, there's a whole lot of ways you could say it. Yeah, I think that that's mostly due to like cheap calories and less due to political communication. Because ultimately, I'm a materialist. Like, I think material just flat out matters more causally in history than, than ideas. But basically. one of the things that you can do with the material, I mean, this is the, you know, base superstructure, whatever, is if you have the materials, you can, you're going to be determining the cultural, you know, the, the organs of cultural transmission and so on and information, the way information is distributed. I mean, this is why, this is why, you know, you, you're political scientists, you've read that is Theta Scotch Bowl. You don't typically have revolutions in places, even when things suck really bad, because unless there's like they're really they have state failure due to international conflict and so on, because the the powers that be can always come up with ways to inform the public a, a, about the worldview that they want them to have. And so this is a you know, this is a major problem. And we like to think liberalism supposedly thinks that there's this like free press and these liberal institutions that are interested in enlightenment values and the truth, getting at the truth and the search for the truth and the, the rational debate, but it doesn't end up happening that way. And I, for, for material reasons, 
the ideas that circulate are those that are agreeable or at least non-threatening to the, the status quo. And propaganda is a, is, a, is a consequence of that, and it also buttresses it. I mean, the, the level of political communication and the, the character of it is, you know, key there. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I don't deny that that happens sometimes. I think it's just more. Um, I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to stress, I think, is that if we want to think strategically, I do notice on our side, broadly speaking, an obsession with propaganda and conspiracy, and I think that is, you know, not not totally. Um, um, not useful, um, but I think we ha we have to admit that we haven't done that well on the left, um, and I think we need to be thinking about where power lies and how to affect power and whether, you know, um, somehow transforming uh, American ideology, how that would actually come about. And I don't think it would necessarily come about through the revelation of truth. I don't think that is accurate. Yeah, I, I don't think in and of itself it would be able to transform things because, well, I mean... But and again, I I do think that there's a an amount of when it comes down to it, they there is a clandestine apparatus of the state, and so if the standard generic you know methods of control don't work, then they'll kill someone. Malcolm X was not somebody who was extremely sanguine about life in America, famously, and he said towards the you know after visiting Mecca and kind of having a racial epiphany about you know the equality of of people, he kind of dropped the white devil shtick from his repertoire he said you know america maybe is the first country where there actually could be a peaceful revolution he had that idea uh and of course you know he gets assassinated uh for his for his troubles likely with by, with collusion from state elements so there is that that part of it but people have thought that now i i tend to think that having read scotch pole and looked at the long view of history that a peaceful transformation through the revolution of revelation of truth is not maybe likely itself just to do anything, but in conjunction with a obvious decline of legitimacy based on real world material things like the, the fall of the U.S. empire, which seems inexorable. It seems like we go from one debacle to the next. The Afghanistan thing, we finally threw in the towel, although who knows what kind of mischief will perpetrate there. You had this Kazakhstan. Quite a bit, I would imagine. <laughs> Quite a bit. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. sure. But but I think they're going to be kind of limited, ultimately, in, in what they're going to be able to do. They're not going to have as many beachheads. I think the U.S. This is, is why... from Kazakhstan, this, this debacle there, where you have protests and then, oh, what's happened? How did these severed heads get on the ground? I don't know about that. I mean, the U.S. just totally, you know, uh, bungled that again, I, I would argue. I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that that was a color revolution slash violent coup that went wrong and so what's going to happen when the u.s is actually not able i mean are we going to blow the world up to try to stop it from happening we're going to provoke war in ukraine or taiwan and just so i think knock everything over or what i think you're more sanguine about the decline of the empire um i think the u.s will be able to manage its empire for a, a long time uh off of things like drone warfare and special forces i i agree i don't think it will, will be um because of china i don't think it will be able to remain dominant in east asia but i do think for much of the world the u.s can still basically act as an imperial power far into the future i think this was the um innovation if you're going to call it that of the all-volunteer force you know the vietnam protests 
force the hand of the military state to be like, whoa, we can't rely on the bourgeoisie or really the working class to fight our wars in quite the same way any longer. So what we're going to do is shift. And uh, this is kind of the shift that, that Sam Moyne partially charts in his book, Humane. We're going to shift to a, a low footprint warfare, you know, with drones and special forces and the protection of power through bases. And, and that's why I think that the U.S. will be able to maintain its empire for much longer. It's unique in history. Back in the day, you know, if there was delegitimization at home, you wouldn't literally have people to staff the military. But now with the advent of push-button warfare, you don't need that many people to do it. And so that's why I actually think we're in a unique historical moment. And, and these are the sorts of questions about power and where power lies that we on the left need to be um, far more open to uh, and, and move beyond, I would say, frankly, the models of the 20th century, which don't reflect how power operates in the early 21st at all, um, in, in, in my opinion. <laughs> The U.S. seems to have to be losing these wars with the low footprint. I mean, in, and, and even our proxy matter, wars, though. Yemen, it looks like they're not going to win in Yemen. They lost in Afghanistan. They just failed in Kazakhstan. The Ukraine totally. thing is a wash, but like totally. the what's the U.S. going to do there? The, Russia, understandably so, does not want that to be a NATO country uh, and with nuclear missiles stationed there and, you know, it's. I don't know what they're going to do in Ukraine. The U.S. could start a war in Ukraine that would be a disaster, or potentially in Taiwan if it would be a disaster. I don't think China was going to invade unannounced. But the you know the U.S. seems to be the Iraq war is a disaster. They want us to leave. My understanding is they asked after the U.S. just murdered Soleimani, I guess, for the crime of defeating ISIS. And then Trump threatened to cut off their access, I think, to the Fed. So this is the thing. Like, I I totally agree. The U.S. has lost all of these things. Like, I I, I think it'd be it'd be. I cannot imagine how one could look at the last 20 years as anything but a series of disasters and lurching from failure to failure. But I think what we might begin to have to admit is that that doesn't really matter for the structure of the empire. It doesn't really matter for the budget. It doesn't really matter for the 750 uh, military bases. Until it does, though. This, this, until it does. Sure, this, until The it Middle does. East, the control Agreed. oil, Europe hanging in the Oil's balance. becoming less important, I think. Because, I, I but think if they become Europe's less important, the then and then Latin America, the trend, I mean, the U.S. has spent a lot of time mm-hmm. demonizing the governments in Venezuela and Nicaragua, and they're still there in Cuba, of course. Uh, Mexico has a slightly left of center government, but I don't know how long we'll tolerate that. Um, but like even in Latin America, Chile has a new constitution elected a, a guy, you know, a liberal dude, at least, um, Brazil, they've look at all of the chicanery yeah. they tried there. Lula might win, yeah. yeah, Lula should win. So it, it seems like the, uh, the, it may come faster and the, aban- the dollar is what really allows the U S to go around acting like the global global bully and that may be changing soon i wrote an article about ending dollar hegemony but um from your from your lips to god's ears <laughs> may 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 the empire uh end sooner than i think it will i i hope it does and i hope it uh, doesn't take the rest of the world with it and uh <laughs> Same that, here. <laughs> uh we'll talk soon thanks so much aaron no problem bye-bye Ben Howard, it is great to have you here talking about propaganda. So uh, how are you doing, Ben? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back again. Always a pleasure. Great. Well, I want to talk about, I mean, there's a lot of things that we could talk about here related to propaganda and this question of, is there propaganda in America? 
And I come down on the side of like, yes, there's lots of it. We exist in almost a propaganda matrix, basically, and, and that it's uh, understanding it is, is important if we're going to actually figure out how to even grapple with it. So one area, I could pick a number of things to comment on, but I want to talk a little bit about Habermas because he was brought up. And I wrote a little bit about Habermas. And he was not, I don't believe that he was a liberal really when it comes down to it um, because, well, he, he pretty much accepted much of Marx's critique of capitalism. So here's what I wrote in my dissertation in the, the book that's coming up. The critical theory of Jürgen Habermas focused on the contradictions between capitalism and the intersubjective norms of communication. Like Lynn Bloom, okay, who was a pluralist guy, uh, Habermas was writing in the 1970s he argued that capitalism persisted despite the essential accuracy of Marx's predictions. The contradictions between the realities of advanced capitalism and the norms of democratic societies led to legitimation crises in which political and economic institutions suffered from diminishing public respect. Such crises are resolved through the power of linguistic intersubjectivity or universal communicative norms. In other words, and at the risk of oversimplification, through open public discourse, the population can have some impact on the regime because the regime needs to resolve crises of legitimacy. Unexplored are the possibilities and implications of elites who collectively manipulate fundamental aspects of political reality and its perception. So I compared Habermas unfavorably to a sociologist who was writing a couple decades before Habermas, and that would be the great C. Wright Mills. I wrote, Unlike Habermas and the pluralists, Mills surmised that state secrecy and the triumph of propaganda allowed the elite to game and beguile the population. Quote, responsible interpretation of events, this is what Mills wrote, was replaced by, quote, the disguise of events, abetted by, quote, a maze of public relations, okay, aka propaganda. Thusly did Mills identify a political system that was assuming ever more holographic qualities as the state came to be defined by its enemies, or rather by the interminable ever-present specter of allegedly existential crises in the form of communist or terrorist conspiracies. So what I'm saying about Habermas and propaganda is that this idea of interpersonal communication between people trying to suss out political reality and arrive at some conclusion, this can be befuddled by propaganda, where the basic facts of the system and history are not really available to the population, or they're so disputed or rendered, you know, the, the, in the realm of opinion, that people can't really agree on a basis to even start discussing what's going on. And this, to me, represents the triumph of propagandists and propaganda in the United States and propagandistic institutions that structurally serve to churn out propaganda and create what I would call this propaganda matrix that we have to live in. So that's my take on Habermas. What do you think is, uh, how, how do you think of the relationship between ideology, propaganda, and materialism? I mean, how should we, how should we think of these things? I think the, you know, propaganda is a very loaded term, and there's a lot of people have varying definitions for what that is and what it means. I think the the most important element is uh, can and how and when do uh, the ruling classes, you know, particularly the American context or the world context today, the bourgeoisie, how, do, how are they able to and when do they manipulate opinion? 
both broad public opinion in, in general terms, as well as the opinions of specific groups of people that are that are important at various different times. So to, to sort of quibble about the definition of what propaganda is, I think is less important than to understand the question of uh, what, what are the circumstances in which opinion merits uh, being manipulated. So certainly, you know, in the United States and in the advanced capitalist centers of the West, you know, Western Europe, the United States, Japan, maybe a few other countries as well, there is a, a kind of ready-made ideology uh, that does permit the ruling class a lot of freedom of action. I mean, basically the tenets of the market, uh, you know, American, Western foreign policy, many of these things are not questioned fundamentally by the, by the public, you know, by the, by the general population. On the other hand, there obviously are circumstances in which um, that ready-made ideology is not sufficient uh, to create whatever circumstance that the ruling class wants to create. I mean, the most kind of the, probably one of the most significant, obviously, we you know, is 9-11, where an entirely manufactured event was created uh, and messaged not only to the American public, but to foreign institutions. I mean, you know, the UN in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 created this uh, sort of anti-terrorism uh, uh, statement, uh, sort of obliging all member countries to fight terrorism which was kind of a blank check for the United States in many respects to go and invade Afghanistan. Um, but also, of course, people may disagree with us about 9-11, but if you talk about the Iraq war very specifically, of course, right, uh, you know, whether the broad American public uh, believed this story about Saddam Hussein having nukes or not, um, you know, even after the Bush administration had acknowledged that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11, something like 80 plus percent, I think this was in like March of 2006, something like 80 plus percent of American soldiers believed that Saddam Hussein had to do, had something to do with 9-11. And that's why the war in Iraq happened. So even beyond questions of motivating, uh, the, the motivations around uh, broad public opinion, there's often very specific groups who need to be convinced of certain things in order to get them to do certain things. Uh, if if I, perhaps many American soldiers if they had been told by their commanders, you know, we need to invade Iraq in order to secure uh, natural resources for America's multinational corporations, uh, you know, they might have been okay with that. But I suspect that there would not have been nearly the fervor uh, and the necessary, you know, the spirit de corps that, that you need in order to fight a war if they didn't believe that Saddam Hussein was involved in 9-11 in some way, shape or form. So there needed to be propaganda, even if it didn't work for the general public, even if New York Times readers didn't believe uh, any of this stuff about, uh, you know, yellow cake from Niger, um, you know, there was there was an attempt and there was a success in motivating certain people to uh, do certain things with this propaganda. So I think that the the relation fundamentally, I think there are circumstances in which the 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 ideology that exists in the in the public consciousness at large, particularly in the advanced capitalist centers of of uh, Western Europe, and the United States, and Japan often does permit a lot of freedom of, of action for the ruling classes for them to be able to do what they want. But when that's not sufficient, um, there are very self-conscious attempts and efforts to uh, try to convince people of very specific things. Uh, and I think that's been, um, I think it's been pretty de determinative in, in many circumstances. I think often it has a, uh, a great impact on, on what the freedom of action is for these groups of people who have specific goals they want to carry out that they might not be able to do if they were honest about their intentions. Right. The general thrust of U.S. foreign policy and domestic policy and so on has benefited such a, a tiny number of people. And this is the point that I try to make, that it 
there must be a large amount, yet it's very rarely discussed candidly in the mass media that's supposed to be informing our democracy. So there must be a lot of messaging and PR manipulation and so on. You know, it, it would, what's interesting about the U.S. situation is the spectrum of it. I mean, there's that there's a, it's not that there's one system of, hey, this is the American approved truth, you know, like you would have expected in in Stalin's Soviet Union or, you know, Nazi Germany, etc. But that it's a, it's a spectrum and yet a spectrum that's actually gives the illusion of pluralism, which I guess it is plural, kind of a managed pluralism or, or restricted pluralism. But, but among, you know, media outlets, for example, there are just perspectives that could, would likely resonate with people, a percentage of the population, especially if these ideas were heard, that you just don't really hear. I mean, the, if the leftmost represents like the nation and democracy now, and they don't, they're not huge outlets with enormous amount of money and resources, but like when you see them basically acting as disseminators of propaganda, then you realize like how totalizing this whole, this whole system is. I mean, what like ideology is ideology really doing the work or is it a is it a liberal perspective to actually blame ideology rather than materialism because i would say that it's like the more liberal perspective to be like wondering like oh gosh why do these people have these wrong ideas and if they didn't have the wrong ideas that would be right rather than the more critical perspective which sees ideology as being a function of material arrangements and material interests that control cultural transmission, you know, mechanisms in society, like our education system and the media and so on. So what do you, how, what do you think is the, if, if propaganda could be, you know, a neutral term in some ways, like, then what's the significance of the propaganda imbalance between forces that would be hegemonic versus counter hegemonic? I mean, this is an, maybe an easy question, but like, what, what is the kind? What is the kind of propaganda we should really be thinking about, rather than yeah. just all persuasive speech? Yeah, I mean, I think pretty clearly the the decisive power seems to be on the side of of the ruling classes in in the West. I mean, even not only within American society and Western European society, but I mean, it's a it's ex, been exported across the world, not just to serve the comprador. I mean, there are many people. Who are not just part of the comprador bourgeoisie in many in many developing countries, for instance, who buy into this kind of thing, and it's it's um, especially in those circumstances, it's it's most obvious that the ideology of neoliberal, neoliberal capital capitalist development and the essentially neoconservative American foreign policy that those things have had disastrous consequences. But it's still often believed uh, because of the pervasiveness of this uh, media apparatus uh, and the way that it's controlled specifically by um, mostly Western multinationals by and large uh, and, and Western financiers, you know, through, through their various interlocking connections with these uh, institutions. I'll say that, um, you know, with respect to the question of, you know, what is it the ideology? Is it the material conditions? Is it the propaganda? Um, you know, for, because propaganda has often, uh, you mentioned, I think, uh, the Black Panthers using the word propaganda in a for their own for their own production of communications, and I think that for the Black Panthers that comes maybe from uh, the Communist Party of China under Mao, where propaganda was a way of the Communist Party convincing 
um, intellectuals, leaders, peasants, workers, that, that the Communist Party had the right idea, side with us, side with us over the nationalists in this, in this civil war. And for them, it, it does not have a negative con you know, context at all. Um, it's, it's viewed as a, a necessary part of politicizing society. You have to, you know, essentially, you know, this is an old Marxist idea, but raise people's consciousness, make them aware of the contradictions in the society, make them aware of their class and their position uh, in the society in order to engender a political revolution of some kind. Now, as far as why the West is depoliticized, that's a very, very complex question that is not, you know, it's reducible you know, to uh, the effects of propaganda or ideology specifically. Um, but I do think that, uh, I, I, you know, the, the question of, because I think, I think the, this very simplistic, ba you know, this base superstructure idea that you have the material conditions and in the United States case, you could say, you know, the economy is dominated by this imperialist accumulation to the United States, pulling resources and labor exploitation from the, uh, you might say the global South. And that creates a particular very, you could say, fertile conditions for a particular ideology to be created in the United States. But on the other hand, the material conditions are not contingent. They're not random. They're very specifically organized by a group of people within the confines and the logic of capitalism itself. And there's things that the ruling class, you know, they can't just do whatever they want. They have to obey by those rules. But they also do structure, this, structure the economy in a way that's specifically beneficial to them in a very self-conscious way. And on accompanying that is very specific. Um, you could call it propaganda. You could call it ideological communication, but very specific uh, messages that they communicate to the public through a variety of institutions, um, which then becomes ready-made in the minds of people. They don't conceive of it as being something that was communicated to them. They perceive of it as something that they just know and is common sense, but it's not at all. It's very much something which was self-consciously made by the ruling classes and their institutions in order to um, sort of uh, give give uh, uh, legitimation, you could say, to the present order of things and and uh, allow for a particular type of depoliticization. And that doesn't mean necessarily convincing people that, um, as you said, there's a lot of different messages that exist. Uh, so, for instance, during a war or when there's a buildup to a war, such as we may be in right now with respect to the situation between NATO and, and Russia and Ukraine, you have a lot of different messages which are being put out to different audiences. You know, you have messages which are going out to uh, people in Western Europe, which are different from the messages being received by people in the United States. And then even along different political lines, because of the sort of splintering and fracturing of the media, people are receiving different lines from different people. And the, the effect of all of it is to create this, um, you could call it like a sort of postmodern condition or something like this, where it's this very fractured uh, um, political ideology. And the common denominator is that the present state of things is inescapable. That's basically the common denominator across the board. And whatever particular flavor that takes um, may be you know, controlled by certain groups, but it has the it has the ultimate effect of that unifying aspect of it. I think that's one of the most definitive features of of the ideology that you see in the West. But the idea that that's not uh, that that is not uh, you. So you know, you could say a, an economics professor, you know, may believe everything that they're saying about the nature of neoliberal economics and how development ought to take place and all these things. They may actually believe that stuff, but the people that are funding them, the people that are bankrolling them. 
And the people who more importantly created the economic conditions which gave rise to that ideology, I don't think they believe that stuff. And so I think that um, the, the, to just sort of say, well, it's just this ideology that arises as if, you know, kind of rising up from the mists of, of the material reality, it's not really true, it's, it's built. Uh, using these communication methods and, and right. that has it, to be taken into account. And if you if you think about it, like in any civilization, was there a time, you know, in modern civilizations, has there ever been a time where an ideology emerged about, you know, a, a, that involved basically people accepting that the social hierarchy of the, you know, uh, the of the political economy that prevailed was illegitimate and because of this ideology you had a society where there was just a revolution and they you know the this new ideology took over like the ideology doesn't if the the ideology doesn't have the the status quo on its side it doesn't get promoted it doesn't you create this incentive structure in the discipline of economics for example and it rewards people you know it gives you carrots and sticks for thinking one way and not thinking another way and that's just how it it presents itself so they don't have to be thinking like i'm lying it's just if they didn't really accept and internalize all these things they wouldn't advance and it goes even further than i mean this goes back to you don't have to be a marxist to actually recognize this aspect of human civilization plato's allegory of the cave which is quite straightforward is really the same thing it's who has the ability to control the cultural apparatus which is what c Wright mills was wanting to do research on and towards the end of his life when he died you know quite young and uh you know, who is it that's going to be ex- creating, who's going to own the institutions that really provide the epistemology for people and the general worldview, the cosmology that prevails in a society? It's going to be the people at the top of the hierarchy and the other yeah. people are confusing the shadows on the cave for reality. And that's why, even if you're not a Marxist, which obviously Plato was not, he was more accepting this just as he was trying to be descriptive about the way social hierarchy works in terms of explaining to people the world and how they understand it. So it, it's just as clear that like, this is a sort of pre-enlightenment reality of the political economy of institutions that involve knowledge and human understanding that you have to understand the political economy of cultural yeah. transmission. Yeah, I, I um, and one of you referenced Paul Lazarsfeld um, in, in, uh, in that section. And I think that, that there's a whole constellation of organizations like that, but I think BASR at Columbia, uh, the Bureau of Applied Social Research is definitely one of them. And, you know, a lot of these groups started off either commercial, they were getting commercial contracts from like Time Magazine or whatever to do like reader surveys, but BSI, BASR at least by, um, by, like the ni- by like 1950, like definitely the early 50s, vast majority of their funding was coming from the U.S. military, like not even the U.S. government, but like the U.S. military. And so that you know what they were doing social research i mean what what were they doing they were finding they were doing basically mass psychological um testing of a sort doing opinion research finding out what what do people think uh in order that for instance the u.s air force could um could more uh properly manipulate public opinion um with respect to its programs or that the military apparatus in general could build a consensus around what it is that they wanted to do uh, and so, uh, there's actually, there's a great book, uh, by Chris Simpson, I think called the science of coercion, um, which talks all about this kind of opinion research and how it was used. And like you say, the production of knowledge, it's, that's a major question here. 
what are they researching on whose behalf are they doing it? They're trying to find out what people think, not so that they can, for instance, deliver the public goods that they desire as expressed through these. I mean, I don't think that that would be a great way to, you know, have a democratic system do a, do a you know, sample survey democracy. But, you know, that's conceivable, at least. But that's not what they were doing at all. They were trying to find out what people thought so that they could manipulate them to achieve their ends. And this was very self-conscious. They were not, I mean, they were not uh, at all confused about what they were doing. Uh, it was very explicit. And and that, importantly, you mentioned C. Wright Mills. I mean, he was very crowded out, so to speak, because who was going to fund, first off, who was going to fund him? But in the second place, all of the money was going to um, these uh, groups to do this very manipulative uh, research and not actually understanding the nature of the society yeah, and uh, beha- behavioralism, pluralism, those kind of things. Like Robert Dahl and the behavioralists, all these people that get these big grants. I mean, I, to me, like if you want to understand what happened to U.S. social science and why it's so bad, in in one anecdote, it's that C. Wright Mills wanted to do a follow up on the power elite to the power elite on the cultural apparatus and he applied to the Ford foundation and the Ford foundation said, no, we're not going to give you that. And then they were, they give money to these people like Robert Dahl and other, you know, pluralist people who are going to produce silly things. And the, the outcome is like political science does all of this, you know, work on regression analysis about opinion polls and everything else. And it, but it, it doesn't ask, it doesn't really delve into the question of power and what are, how useful is, any opinion data when the org- when the organizations and institutions that shape people's perceptions are so dominated by very politicized forces, then why are you studying it in this sort of apolitical, pseudoscientific way when, like, there is no real functioning liberal, um, you know, ecosphere of information and media that that informs people without you know harsh biases baked into the cake. Yeah. And I think, you know, to talk about the idea of, of like, what is it, you know, what is the difference between propaganda and ideology and this question of, you know, on the one hand, for instance, a lot of, like I said, a lot of these people believed what they were saying, essentially, I think, uh, and whether there was some cynicism in that belief or not, uh, nonetheless, the people that they were getting funding from, I don't think shared their, you know, naive uh, ideas. And secondly, I think the people who were hiring them were instrumentalizing them in many ways so that it was not really a matter of, um, you know, were they self-consciously trying to manipulate people, trying to manipulate the the public conversation about, you know, politics in, in the United States. Um, it was just a matter of, uh, you know, you're, they're saying something which is compatible with what I need to be said. And, you know, this is going to, I'm going to give them a platform and give them money, give them grants. I mean, that, you know, talk about them. That's the material of how, how this kind of ideology is constructed. Um, because if you look at what American political science departments look like today, or really any, I mean, obviously economics is arguably worse. Um, the, the people who are teaching those now you know, even like the most aged professors in some of those departments, they were young undergrads coming up through that system at that point in time. So for them, a lot of those things seem to them to be ready-made. This is what everybody is saying. This is, you know, you could say it's a hegemonic ideology at that point in time, even though it wasn't, it was being manipulated very consciously by certain forces, but then it takes on a kind of life of its own. 
and I'm sure there are new projects, which are, you know, new attempts to manipulate um, the, the academy. But many of these old settled questions are old and settled as far as people are concerned. And there's no need to, you know, necessarily recreate the, the propaganda uh, with respect to those old questions. It just is taken as this is what everybody believes. And this is the, you know, this is the ideology of the day. Yeah, these are, they, they, they have built this, you know, edifice of, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of nonsense. If, if the assumptions underlying things are, are incorrect and they just, you just keep going with it and you have all the journals more or less singing from the same hymn book and they, all the readers for things have the same kind of, of mindset, you can create your own reality with this way. And it doesn't, it's it's boring on top of everything else. Like it's not really the, the political science view of the world. If you go read like the annual review of political science, it, it, it's quite, it's not very interesting. It's quite boring. It's not illuminating. But then other, if you want to take the, if you are, if you understand, if you have the idea that the mission of social science or history and journalism too, is also to like somehow use, you know, human intelligence to explain these things and the way that the world actually works and the way human society works, then you want to uh, go around these, these hegemonic institutions that sub support the prevailing hierarchy. So then there's a question of like, is it, what does it actually do? It, if we expose propaganda and if we expose the criminality of the state and the actual history that has been covered up by various, you know, cover stories. When history becomes cover story, is this, and we expose this or try to get people to recognize what has actually been happening to us. You know, what is the, why, why bother doing this under these circumstances? Why should we bother trying to uh, open people's eyes to uh, the, the real nature of the regime that they live under? I mean, I'll say as a partisan for left-wing, you know, basically communist Marxist ideology, you know, I would say that the, the goal of politicizing a society, which necessarily entails an understanding of its true nature, which from a Marxist perspective, obviously is a class, class structure. And uh, that is a, is a, it's a necessary, but not definitely not sufficient uh, element for any kind of social revolution. You have to have uh, a, you have to have a, a mass of people we're able to achieve some kind of political action. And in order to do that, they need to have, it doesn't need to be 100% correct. It doesn't need to be perfect. Of course it can't be, uh, you know, the human, the human mind has inherent limitations, but it ha there has to be some apprehension, a correct apprehension or close enough to correct of the actual nature of how the society is organized. And that is a part of politicizing your society in a, in a positive, you could say sort of left-wing Set so positive from my point of view. I think that that's again not a sufficient condition, but it is a necessary condition for any kind of social revolution. And are, I think that's are pretty you much... being are you being a liberal by saying that <laughs> discourse is going to somehow be influential uh, in terms of determining outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point because I think if we take if we take like the discourse, and I'm making I'm making air quote signs with my hands. If we take the discourse or the public discourse as the place where political debate happens, then no, of course not. That because that is fully enemy territory, right? As far as basically any social movement with any progressive character at all is concerned, 
On the other hand, there is a, there is a capability to build alternative uh, spheres of discourse. I'm not talking about like the, you know, people had a dream of the internet would be that. I'm not talking about that per se, but there are, there is a way to build and there have been successfully historically in the past um, alternative discourses, which have taken place outside of that mainstream and which have, have been successfully able to politicize the society. Now, naturally, you know, social revolutions succeed in some countries and they don't succeed in other countries. And it often doesn't have anything to do with the particular ideology of the, of the mass of, of people in those countries. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. But I think if, if, um, you know, if political action is about, I, I mean, I think fundamentally political action, mass political action is about understanding the nature of the world and trying to act in order to change it. Right. I mean, that's, you know, in a very basic distilled sense, that's what it is. So the first step necessarily is some kind of politicization that involves correctly apprehending the state of things in the world. So I think to the extent that um, you're trying to break into, you know, the public discourse and and try to change things from the inside and things like that. No, I don't think that that's going to work. I don't think that the great uh, political debates are going to occur on the New York Times op-ed page. Um, but I do think that uh, there is a truth out there which can be apprehended close enough to the truth, which can be apprehended by people. And it needs to be communicated by those people who understand it as a part of a broader political project. Yeah, this idea, which is, you've heard people apply this in some ways to imperial crimes and wars of like, they're not being, you know, a kind of postmodern way of dismissing any attempt to like actually explain what happened with a particular you know, historical episode. And so when you're talking about what has happened with the emergence of the clandestine state and, and cover stories and so on, then you're talking about exposing state crimes and debunking cover stories, which have the power of the state and the mass media behind them. And we have been subjected to so many cover stories and still are up to this day, where it's like the logic of the clandestine state and covert operations with plausible deniability, it, it, it's educating people about that, about uh, educating people about propaganda and that element in particular, because really what this means is the state has the ability to falsify history. They Something happens that they have planned, a covert operation, there's a cover story built in, cover story gets reported, okay, and that is fake news. When you talk about the fake news that really matters, I mean... The fake news is the most dangerous and damaging stuff is what our own, you know, powerful institutions put out. And today's fake news is tomorrow's fake history. And that's what we're trying to deal with. I mean, that's those these are the things that I end up covering a lot because it, it's the, the crimes show the nature of the, the regime and the fact that they have the cover stories to me. People that want to say, oh, exposing state crimes don't matter, although they usually don't say that. They'll say conspiracies because that word is kind of charged. But, let's, you know, these are state crimes that are just carried out in ways that we under, we know that they do with covert operations and plausible cover stories, plausibly deniable covers, you know, cover stories that will cover, allow them to have plausible deniability. So then if we expose these things. This is a way to expose the nature of the regime. And then. What to me indicates that it actually does matter is that they put so much energy into attacking the people who attack the cover stories. Like what happened to Oliver Stone with JFK 
what's happening to people that want to try to stick up for the OPCW whistleblowers in Syria. You know, I mean, there's so much evidence on that, that they basically staged a gas attack. It's pretty overwhelming, but then they yeah. trot out these people like these propagandists like Bellingcat and so on. So for me, I look at what the state does and these operators, and I think they know what they're doing. They created the world's most powerful empire. They're not idiots. So their cover stories are important for them to maintain. Therefore, I think it's important. That alone suggests it's important for us to actually tear them down and debunk them. And the same thing with like leaders. They, you'll hear one, some people say, oh, leaders don't matter. We need to do like the people's mic with Occupy Wall Street and all this other business of like a decentralized blob of that's where there's no hierarchy and equality. And it's like, okay, but if leaders don't really matter, then why did the CIA try to kill Sukarno seven times? Why did, why have they, you know, knocked off so many leaders over the years? Like if leaders do matter because you can base, in some ways you can base a strategy based on what the empire thinks is important. You have to think that, okay, they probably know what they're doing. And so mm. let's take that into our, you know, let's put that into our, you know, into our minds. So we, we understand what's going on. I mean, is it worth trying to expose state crimes and what could we get out of this in the, in the long run? Yeah, I think, so I think in the first place, I think it's pretty obvious that in the advanced capitalist centers, the ideological situation is pretty bad. Um, even if people believed, even if people agreed with us, for instance, that nine 11 was not really the work of, you know, a bunch of Al Qaeda terrorists, but really was planned by people within and adjacent to the, the American state. Uh, you know, what kind of impact would that really have? In the United States, I don't know if it would have a lot, right? There's a, there are a variety, talking about material conditions, you could say the impact of, you know, imperial super profits and, and the effect, the ideological effect that has on people. But that's a very Western-centric, advanced capitalist center-centric way of looking at things. In many other countries, political revelations of this type have toppled governments, have led to social revolutions, have have helped to and been a part of, a, a, as I said, a politicization of society at large. So I think that, I think in the first place, it needs to be said because it's the truth and the truth is worth saying regardless. But I think in the, in the second place, um, if you don't have that understanding of the truth, it's simply not possible to create uh, a new social, uh, a new material circumstance, which might lead to better conditions. And then lastly, in, in countries that do not have the kinds of problems that we have uh, here in the United States or in Western Europe, um, it can have a much greater impact. Um, and in particular, you know, for instance, this most recent coup d'etat in Burkina Faso, right? It seems from what I have been able to surmise that there was some French involvement in some way, shape or form. In this. I can't say for sure whether that was true, but for instance, if that was true, that would have a pretty significant impact on how uh, people from Burkina Faso might approach this situation. Uh, and I think uh, saying that it doesn't, that that doesn't matter, that whether the French were involved in this or trained this guy or had him do this or not, saying that that doesn't matter, uh, I think is, is very strange in that context, because knowing what is true about this can motivate uh, political action one way or another. So I think, uh, you know, I think that attitude itself, that this doesn't matter, I think that that is itself a reflection of a kind of postmodern ideology that exists here, that um, nothing can change, nothing is possible, we can't overcome this situation. So it's not even worth saying what's true. Uh, we should just focus on other things. Um, I think that that is a, a dangerous idea. I think, you know, 
for again, it's not a sufficient condition, but it's definitely a necessary condition that you have to politicize the society. And that begins with telling the truth about the nature of the state and telling the truth about the nature of the class society in the West. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think for some of these things, it, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, almost all of them, almost all points along the political spectrum would be interested in trying to assess, like, if the clandestine state murdered an elected president, for example, in broad daylight in Texas, if you're a liberal, then you think like, well, this is America and democracy matters and we need to arrest these people and have a trial, okay? If you are Fidel Castro, then you're not a liberal who thinks along those lines, but you're saying that this is, yes, this is how vicious the bourgeois state really is and this is it. This is the bourgeois state revealing itself, okay? Now, I think that either position is kind of tenable. I mean, I think that not every liberal is an opportunistic you know, mercenary person like Rachel Maddow, who's just, you know, counting the money. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them believe good things about like that there should be, you know, liberal freedom of the press, democracy, you know, elections. And those are things that you can make a defense for. But, you know, regardless, like the, the people that would argue, the people that would argue that the state should have the right to, uh, that the national security state should have a veto power over democracy. That's a, very minority position in terms of what anyone would actually espouse. And yet those people seem to be at the seat of power in this country. And this is, I think that this is something that when you think about it should be astounding to people and does point to a systemic crises of the liberal institutions that are supposed to safeguard us from like tyranny. I mean, that's like what they're supposed they're right. that's how they're built in theory, although who even believes these things anymore? So it's a it's strange to argue that like it doesn't matter. Whatever the state does, don't don't spend too much time trying to like hash out their crimes because, you know, it doesn't matter. I think that is such an important important point. The, the contradiction between sort of the a liberal ideal of what uh, multi-party liberal democracy looks like um, versus, you know, what it has produced ultimately and where, you know, where we are, where basically every country in the West has essentially a military dictatorship more or less, you know, uh, in the most important elements. And I think that is part of why, um, you know, any fact is just a fact. Um, but when you start to take these things and politicize them and make it clear, uh, as you say, there's a systemic crisis of these institutions. And if you can explain, it's not just that, um, you know, these, let's say 9-11, it's not, it's not the case that 9-11 is an aberration um, or, or somehow a foreign body that has infected the system of some kind. No, it's actually a logical consequence of the development of capitalism, you know, up to this point or up to that point, 2001. It's a natural consequence of, you know, increasing monopolization and increasing control over uh, the, the capitalist economy by a very, you know, small number of people at the top of multinationals and their interests. If you can politicize these facts and give people more context about why these things matter, then it can help to undo some of those effects of that ideology because you can say, you know, we cannot just restore the old liberal order, right? We can't just go back in time and pretend that you know, none of that, none of the stuff has happened. None of the material conditions have changed, which have made that impossible have changed. You know, I think that is such a crucial point in showing that, because uh, I think that these, you know, in many respects, um, you know, you could think of propaganda as like the tip of the spear of ideology in the same way that like 
military action or covert action is kind of the tip of the spear of imperialism. And if you could start to show like the contradiction between uh, what, because as you said, not very many people in this country think that it's okay for the Pentagon to fundamentally be in charge of foreign policy, uh, you know, the bureaucrats and the generals and things like that. Most people don't think that's okay. But if you could show them, that's a natural consequence of everything that's happened up till now, all of the decisions that have been made, including by people who disagreed with that idea, you know, liberals who thought that that was awful. It was still a consequence of things that they did and decisions that they made. So if you can politicize these facts and show people what the context of them is and, and it can help to sort of uh, break that fever, if you will, of this of this kind of ideology that exists in this country today and in the West more broadly. Yeah, and that's why we that's why we do what we do. We gotta we gotta break the fever, the the fever dream of these the propagandized people yeah. <laughs> as best we can. As I mean, I I personally myself have had to reevaluate a lot of things that I did before. We all know, or some of you know. That uh, I worked for Obama at one point, and you know we got it. We we're in this world trying to make sense of it, and uh, we we need to somehow, you know, move towards the light because this is uh, the situation now. I don't even. I had a big list of like things I was going to argue. I'm not even going to try to like go into them in any depth, but like just the number of things that are propaganda tropes that that are very consequential: Xinjiang, Kazakhstan, Syria, Ukraine. Libya, just in recent years, it's it's wild, and um, it, you've got to you've got to confront this. And the and the the bigger danger is that these people are so maniacal that they're going to miscalculate with their schemes, and they're going to end up blowing up the world. And in that case, we don't have a whole lot that we can do with the with this or that podcast. But um, assuming that they don't blow up the world and that the balance of power changes globally, then I think eventually, you know. Oligarchy, if you read Aristotle, he says that oligarchy can lead to democracy when some part of the ruling elite decides that they're going to make a case to the people and get the people on their side. And I think that, that, that there's a potential for that in conjunction with some obvious crises of legitimacy going forward and that you've got to keep the, the flame burning up until that point. I mean, I have to believe that that's, that makes it worthwhile trying to struggle against it because – you, you've got to believe in, uh, in in the truth and in the emancipatory power of the truth. Yeah, couldn't couldn't say it any better. Amen. All right. Well, with that, I think that we're going to call this one a wrap. And thank you so much, Ben, for joining us again. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. Okay, that's a wrap for today. Please check out the show notes to see where you can find links to Daniel Bessner's work. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode, Casey Moore for the artwork, and Mock Orange for providing our music. And remember, you can escape the propaganda matrix as long as you keep chasing the light.